Sales Tuners, Episode 89, Mike Schultz, President of Rain Group. If you can help them see where they are is not as good as where they should be, and it's worthwhile for them to attempt to get from where they are to where they want to be, you'll have started opening the value process. This is Sales Tuners with Jim Brown, the only weekly show where we talk about the attitude, action, and ability that gets sales reps and entrepreneurs to grow their revenue from $1 million to more than $10 million in just two years. All I do is win, 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 no matter what. Got money on my mind, I can never get enough. And every time I step up in the building, everybody hands go up. It's time. It's time. It's Sales Tuners time. I'm Jim Brown, your host, and our weekly inspiration comes from Pele, who said success is no accident. It is hard work, perseverance, learning, studying, sacrifice, and most of all, love of what you are doing or learning to do. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Mike Schultz, president of Rain Group. From the hundreds of articles featured in Business Week, Forbes, and MSNBC, to the two Wall Street Journal best-selling books, Mike's approach to consultative sales and strategic account management has changed the game for sales reps around the world and has extended that effort by teaching college classes about sales at Brandeis University in Boston. All right, make sure you stick around until the end where I'll give my recap and top takeaways. You can also check out all the links and show notes at salessooners.com slash 89. But now let's get to the conversation where Mike talks about the effects of losing his first child to congenital heart defects. My first child and at our 18 week ultrasound, my wife and I were very excited to go and find out if we were having a boy or girl. And at the time we found out it was a boy in the same breath, he said, and he's very sick. Uh, so he had a uh, heart defect uh, that was going to require him to have a very tough life and a bunch of surgeries. And so he ended up being the first person in the world ever to have uh, two successful heart surgeries before he was born. And after that, he had um, a really rough ride. He had three open heart surgeries in the first few years of his life. The first year of his life, we spent about seven months in the hospital um, overnight with him. And he really struggled. Uh, he had a really great ride from age two with one surgery in the middle there up to age four. And then he was diagnosed in congestive heart failure and put on the heart transplant list. When he got sicker, we ended up spending a full year in the hospital where I essentially, because I had two other kids now and one of them was an infant, so you can't have an infant at the hospital. And I couldn't breastfeed. So I ended up living full-time in the hospital, about five feet from my son uh, in his hospital room, hanging out with him. And a lot of time he was uh, not healthy, but he was fine and watching TV and playing games. And I would hang out with him all day. And half the time my dad would be there and I would try to work and run the business from, from the hospital. He was discharged after getting very sick with his new heart. He got his new heart on March 3rd, 2017. When you get any transplant, the risk is rejection. And he drew the short straw and he had awful rejection and he and his heart did not get along. He had a couple of cardiac arrests. We helped him fight back from those. He ended up coming home. We spent a glorious month at home. He had a fabulous time, but it wasn't meant to be. And he died last July. I miss him every day. Mike, thank you so much for sharing that. I, I just, I, 
kind of at a loss for words. Um, you know, when, when you and I have talked in the past, you said a lot of people won't won't ask you about that. And, you know, I have a little boy about the same age as what you're talking about your son having been. And I just I can't even imagine. So I, I guess the question I would ask is tell me how that has has impacted the, the work that you do or, or your drive now around the work that you do. The Ethan Lindbergh Foundation, they help people get to Boston and stay in Boston when their children need need uh, cardiac um, cardiac care and cardiac surgeries that they just can't do anywhere else. This particular family had to live in Boston temporarily for a year and they had to rent an apartment. It was like $6,000 next to the hospital uh, because you can't get a month to month in Boston. You don't know. So it's affected me in, in in all sorts of different ways. Having a reason to want to to do work and make money, so you know, I can help other people and I can keep his memory alive and do things in his name. But also, I, I've had to run the company for many month stretches and one time for a whole year from the hospital room. So it's affected how I think about my time. It's affected how I think about what's important. It's affected how I think about work. It's affected my productivity. Uh, some in an unhelpful way because there were times when I couldn't be productive. But I've also literally changed the way I work. And, and I'm, I'm an old dude. I've been working for a while. You work for a while. Everyone works the same way. You know, I've had the biggest change for how I work in the last two years than I've had in the you know, 20 years previous. Well, like I said, I just thank you so much for just being willing to share that, you know, with with the listeners. I know it's hard, and and uh, his memory is definitely with us uh, uh, in this conversation today. I want to talk about that work that you do do uh, today, Mike. Uh, we talk about the attitudes, the action abilities in this show that have led to your success. So, tell me about the sales processes that you run today. What is the Rain Group, and and why does a typical customer buy from you? Our mission, our goal in life, is to unleash sales potential. You hear all the time, companies large and small, they think, geez, if people here really knew how to sell this stuff, then they could get our value across to more buyers. And there should, there's just a ton of untapped revenue through the people here that sell. And we help to unleash that sales potential. Our headquarters office is in the Boston area. That's where I am now. And we have offices around the world in Geneva, London, Mumbai, Sydney, Johannesburg, Toronto, and Bogota. And um, we help companies, tons of companies you would have never heard of, but also Citibank, Johnson & Johnson, Hitachi, Pricewaterhouse. So um, we help companies large and small to make sure that, that the people that are on the front lines from prospecting to consultative selling to negotiation to winning big deals to growing accounts to sales management, that that whole system is working well and as strongly as possible and that the people working inside that system know what to do to maximize and hit their potential. Well, I spoke at the top about the research and the articles and the books and all that that you've done. And you just gave us a great insight uh, into Rain Group. But you haven't always been the person you are today, Mike. Take me way back. How did you actually get into sales? My actual real first selling job was literally selling cookbooks door to door to businesses. You want to have uh, an introduction to sales? Try selling cookbooks door to door to businesses. And I liked it. And I was, uh, there were like 30 people in the office and I was doing this over college break. And some guys were doing it for a year or two or three. That was all they were doing. And I walked in in the second week. I was the high roller. It's like, wow, geez, you know, um, I, I like it. And it was already working out for me. Then when I graduated from college and I graduated with a 
that business degree that everybody wants when they start start their careers in business. I was an American studies major. Um, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, real real great intro there. I got my very first job. I thought I was smart and I thought I was full of myself and I thought it would be cool to have the word consultant on my business card. Something about the consulting industry really drew me. And I was at a good undergraduate school, tended to hire undergrads uh, into consulting. So I was applying to consulting firms large and small, and I got a job at a consulting firm small, and they were a sales performance improvement consulting firm. So while everyone else was um, during senior week was out on the booze cruise and saying goodbye to college, uh, my little consulting firm closed a big job and asked me to come in and work during senior week. And I was reading, I was reading spin selling and and strategic selling when everyone else was um, off partying, and I was um, headlong into the world of thinking about and understanding sales. And then I started my own company, and for the last 16 years, as my business partner and I have brought in all the business and sold all the business, and we were thrilled with our very first sale of $10,000. And you know, this year, the last three, four months, we've sold uh, – actually, our biggest one in the last few months was well over a million dollars. So we've sold, sold things small and big. Well, it's some of that research that actually brought us uh, together. You guys have recently uh, released the uh, debunking the sales prospecting myths. And I want to talk about a few of those today. One of the things that stood out to me, Mike, was 57% of decisions are made before a buyer reach out to the salesperson and then carrying on 67% of the buying journey has been done digitally. I'm reading that all over the place. I'm hearing people spout it. Is that true? It might be true, but it's useless and unhelpful and guides sellers and sales leaders down thinking paths that tend to hurt their success. I spend quite a bit of my time whenever we are uh, working with new clients and even working with our current clients, helping them sort out through all the sales research and all the sales noise, what do I do about this? This whole 57% of the, um, the buyer's journey is done before they talk to a seller. So what? We actually talked to the sellers, and it turns out that the great majority of seller of buyers want to talk to sellers as early as possible in their decision-making process. So you think, like, oh, geez, 57%, that means I have to be good uh, later in the sales process, and uh, I should probably not bring up capabilities because they don't want to hear about capabilities. They can read all that on the internet now because their buying journey is done online. Yeah, well, we just talked to 489 buyers who are sold to all day to ask them about their experiences being sold to. But we also ask them, when do you want to talk to sellers? Well, 71% of the buyers want to talk to sellers as early as possible in the buying process when they are forming their ideas of what's possible and what to do. And it goes down from there as you move to the right in the sales process in terms of them looking at vendors and trying to figure out how to solve the problems and all that and making the decision. It goes way down. So they want to talk to you early. Problem is, is that... The buyers also said that 58% of their conversations with sellers are not valuable. They want to talk to you early, but these other pieces of data saying, oh, they're talking to you later. They surfed online. So what? They say to me, and the more senior buyer we found, the more that they said, yeah, of course I look online and maybe I glance at your website, but I want to hear from you. You got to boil it down for me. If you want me to consider something, you need to be able to talk about your capabilities. As a matter of fact, in prospecting, people say, oh, don't send information about your capabilities. Capabilities pitch is dead. Actually, buyers said they wanted to hear about that. 
They also wanted, in terms of the content that influenced them to uh, accept a meeting, they wanted content 100% customized to them. They absolutely hate spam. They absolutely hate the even automatically customized gym comma. Yeah. At, you know, in, in these uh, increasingly competitive times, you need an advantage, blah, 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 at insert company name here. Like, so no, something actually, they could tell. Yeah. Something they yeah, could tell was completely look, automated to look like. Oh, it was yeah. They hate that. They hate that. But they do want to know about capabilities. So the point of the story is that, you know, those pieces of data are misleading. Um, you have to understand and, and try to dig deeper into what's actually going on with buyers and buying to try to figure out uh, what they actually want. So let's talk and, about some of that, Mike. So uh, yeah, sure. you said that they want to, they want to be, they want to hear from you. They want to talk to you early in the buying process. How do we figure out where they're at in their cycle? How do we reach out to them early enough and become part of that conversation? If you think about anyone in decision-making process, there, there's no way that we can magically get a signal on our desk that goes beep, beep, beep when someone that we don't know or that we haven't talked to or that we don't know well is entering the beginning of a buying process. But what you can do is say, who buys our stuff? Let's say uh, chief financial officers tend to buy your stuff. If they're constantly evaluating different kinds of things, some of them might be in the middle of evaluating what you do. Some of them might have just bought something that you do three months ago, so they're not going to be thinking about it for a year or two. Uh, and some of them are at the beginning. If you can get in touch with and develop relationships with a hundred of them and then maintain those relationships, you should be in contact with them at what we call the elusive time of need is. So if the thing that they buy, let's, let's, let's say it's something that you absolutely positively can't convince them to buy unless they otherwise have a need, you're a lawyer. You're a lawyer, so I'm not going to call you unless they're sued or unless they're thinking of switching firms. Uh, but when that happens, if you have contacts with the chief legal officer or the chief operating officer at 100 companies, if on average companies switch law firms every five years, then you know that out of those 100, if you just do the math, odds are 20 of them on any given year are going to be willing to consider switching law firms. So you just have to create relationships with the people at the right kinds of companies with the right titles and create those relationships in a good way. Let's get into that. I'm creating those relationships. It definitely sounds like a long play there, right? How do I create that initial outreach? You know, another myth that you talked about, cold calling is dead. I don't believe it. You don't believe it, but you have the stats behind it. Talk to me about that. Like how, how do we get through today with cold calls? When I'm hearing executives are, are getting rid of phones on desks and, and all that kind of stuff. We studied, uh, along with the 489 buyers, we studied 488 sellers, and we asked them what tactics for outreach, and I think there were 12 or 14 outreach tactics we asked about, which ones were most successful. Making phone calls to existing customers and accounts was number one. Making phone calls to prior customers and accounts was number two. Presenting and speaking at conferences or seminars was number three. Sending one-to-one -one emails manually after doing research and customizing the message was four, and making phone calls to new contacts was five. And then there was a whole bunch after that. So three out of the top five tactics are phone, and the buyers said they most want to hear from sellers by email, and the second, they want to hear from them by phone. Not social media, not LinkedIn, not um, smoke signals, not direct mail, but the buyers literally like, call me and email me. So the phone works. The phone is fine. 
I think that there are a lot of the people that either say don't use the phone, they're either trying to sell their own content for how to sell without the phone, and they're playing on the emotional needs of people, sellers, who don't want to use the phone, so they're hoping they don't have to. So a lot of this is just an emotional thing. If you can get past the emotional garbage, the phone works and it works fine. That's interesting how you said that you, they're, they're almost playing on the folks who don't want to pick up the phone and leaning into that because you're right. I mean, I make cold calls literally weekly myself. A lot of the reps that I work with, I'm encouraging them to use the phone and we're having some great success. Um, so it was interesting that you said that phone was a second only to email. You talked earlier about how when we do email, though, they want that content completely uh, personalized to them. What kind of messages are you seeing uh, that, that actually strike a, a, a chord in the buyers today? Buyers like to hear about research 100% uh, focused on them. That's relevant. So if you have research, buyers want to know things that are new. Another study that we, that we did through the Rain Group Center for Sales Research, we studied hundreds of buyers that represent, actually it was a little over 700 buyers. They represented $3.1 billion of products and services purchased. And we asked them to describe their experience with the seller that they gave the purchase to, you know, the winner of the sale, so to speak, and compare them to the seller that came in closest second, but left with a set of steak knives and not, not the deal. And the number one things that the sellers that won the deals did differently because the buyer said that they educated them with new ideas and perspectives. So if you have a new idea and perspective, it's good for getting a meeting. And if the buyer actually says, wow, uh, that was a new idea and perspective, that's going to help me think, it's much more likely for them to value you and, and want to buy from you. So research works, ideas meetings work, buyers want to hear about best practices, buyers want to hear about ROI cases and success stories. Uh, and they do want to hear about capabilities that they said that that influenced whether or not they took meetings. Uh, and the best practices that I've seen is that you weave your capabilities into what we call an attraction campaign. So you want to reach out to them and say, hey, uh, we studied um, companies in your industry, you know, insert industry here. For those that are having the top top 25% of profit and growth, uh, they're doing three things consistently that the other companies aren't. As a way of introducing ourselves, I'd be happy to share with you those results. Let's say you send them that email and they don't get back to you. Then you can send the same kind of message to say, I don't know if you know about us, but the five things that we tend to do and do well are one, two, three, four, five. So you can weave them into your messages. I like that a lot. So go with me and let's say that they they bite on the, here are the three things that the successful companies are doing that the unsuccessful ones aren't. They take that call beyond just telling them those three things. How does that meeting go? What's the agenda? What's the flow? Well, first of all, you have to make up a bunch of statistics that, that lead to uh, your business. Uh, no, just kidding. You actually have to have good research. You have to have some story to tell. You have to have credibility around it. You have to be able to say, there are 10 things that we looked at, and these five over here, these are the things that everyone talks about you have to do. It turns out you only have to do one of them, but you also have to do two other things. And then you're able to weave that into a story. Uh, we call them convincing stories. Well, I thought it was going to be like this, and that's what the buyers thought. It turns out it was like that. And when these things came together, which is not very common, it actually achieved an outcome that others uh, that 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 previously wasn't achievable. So as you're doing that, 
you get the buyer thinking about not how this other person achieved it, but can I and should I achieve that? That's really interesting. How the conversation also goes, even if it's more just straightforward to say these were the things, uh, the buyer might say, all right, those are the things. Uh, one and two, we're doing pretty well, but three and four have been killing us for years. All you have to do as a salesperson is say, how so? What have you been trying? When you say kill you, how is it killing you? If it looked like it wasn't killing you, what would that look like? What have you tried uh, to, that's, to, to solve the problem that hasn't solved the problem yet? Are you still interested and even willing to try again if you thought your chances of success were higher? Do you want me to tell you stories about how we actually changed that situation? So you get into what would be a good needs discovery, but leading with content that they want to know and they want to hear about. Your, your conversion point from that event is then to get into the discovery at that point. Yeah, for sure. And you have to do it with the right emotional intelligence. But I like the buyers tend buyers tend to give signals to say, you know, I like this. What if they said we already know all this? All right, so I guess we, we should go. No. Well, you already know all this. What are you doing about it? Is it working for you? Do you think you're achieving everything you should be achieving? Yes. Well, what are you achieving? Well, we're getting 16% return on this. Well, wouldn't it be better if you're getting 25? Well, of course. Well, 16% is that benchmark that's usually pretty good, but we've been able to do a few things at some of our clients to achieve 25. Maybe we can do it here. Maybe we can't, but do you at least want to hear about it? Oh yeah, sure. It can't hurt to hear about it. Okay. So you take them out of their complacency or satisfaction mode to their desire to solve a problem or seek a better future. And if you're a good salesperson, you can do that. Yeah. I just had uh, Liz Kane from OpenView Ventures and, and she talked about how one of the biggest things that she sees as a challenge with outbound prospecting is that the salespeople think they're calling on leads, but they're not. They're calling on suspects. They have to get them interested first. And I, and so I'm taking what you're doing right now and thinking, yeah, that's the interest. Or you, I think you call it attractiveness, right? Like you have to get that first before you get the right or the opportunity to go into your pitch or, or even into discovery. Mike, I want to be cognizant of your time. So I want to ask one last question here before we take a quick break. I've often heard that cold meetings don't turn into sales wins. I know that's not true because... Well, I, I prove it every day, but you've got the research behind it. I know that buyers want us to be valuable, but how do we show value in the meetings uh, with them? If you ask 10 sellers or even 10 buyers what's value, they're not going to answer it similarly. We tend to look at it like this. If something resonates, like, oh, that's important. If it doesn't resonate, if, then they don't care about it. You have to substantiate to say, wow, I want 10 times ROI, but everyone tells me an ROI story. I don't want to always get it. But if you get them to start to believe, like, I want that and it's going to work, now you have something. And then the third part is, is who do you choose? Like, I have, like, I want to do this and I think it's going to work. Now I have to choose how to do it so that you need to be uh, the, seen as the best choice. So if you can resonate, differentiate, and substantiate, then you will provide value. The first part that you want to start, start with is resonating. If you can help them see where they are is not as good as where they should be, and it's worthwhile for them to attempt to get from where they are to where they want to be, you'll have started opening the value process. You start those by, I think, educating with new ideas and perspectives. One, if there's something that you can share that they literally don't know that can get them from A to B, or if there's a potential that there's an actual need that if you just let a needs discovery, you could find out, if you can run a good needs discovery and ask good questions, the buyers tend to think that the sellers are still not very good at it. Consultative selling has now been around 
for 48 years. The book was published in 1970 by Mac Hannon, and sellers still aren't good at it. And buyers tend to value sellers that listen to them, that understand them, that they, th- they say they get it. And they also value sellers that bring something to the table with educating with ideas and so forth. That's good stuff. Mike, I want to take a quick break so that I can say thank you to my sponsors. But when we come back, it's going to be time for the money round. So you don't go away. And sales tuners, you don't go away either. We'll be right back. Costello has been a sponsor of this show for several months now. So I wanted to call founder and CEO Frank Dale and ask him why exactly he built Costello. You and I have talked to a lot of salespeople and I've yet to meet one that doesn't want to be great. But if we look at the tools that they have available to them, they're not built to make their job easier. We have CRM and it's great for contact management. We have awesome tools like our friends at SalesLoft that will help you with cadences and, and reaching out to prospective customers. But the second we start talking to someone, we're stuck with Post-it notes, Google Docs, and Evernote templates. And if you're trying to run a dynamic sales call, that just doesn't cut it. And so what that leads to is forgetting to ask that question you meant to ask, not remembering that customer story when you need to tell it, and then data that maybe we need to understand what's going on in the business, not making it back to CRM. Connect with Frank and his team or request a demo at andcostello.com. That's A-N-D-C-O-S-T-E-L-L-O.com and see why their platform is truly changing the way reps run sales calls. We're back and it's time for the money round. Mike, are you ready for the money round? I am ready. Let's do it. What's the one thing that has contributed most to your transformation from normal to exceptional? In the last few years, I've become obsessed with productivity. I always thought I was pretty productive, but try running a a business from a hospital room and you learn that there's a whole new level you can get to if you have a very short period of time in a highly distracted environment. And it's literally changing changing my life and changing uh, how I work. If you were to start over today in sales, what would you tell yourself to spend the next 30 days doing? Being obsessed with figuring out what success looks like. Too many people dive in and just start doing something or they start reading. You need to figure out if I'm going to be doing this for 30 days, I'm going to be doing it for two years. First, I need to find out what it looks like to really kill it. Two-part question for you here, Mike. Which phrase describes you best and why? I love to win or I hate to lose. I love to win because winning's fun. What's a book that you've read multiple times or always find yourself recommending to others? I have read multiple times. I read it every few years on Writing Well by Bill Zinser. Sales Tuners, if you'd like to check out Mike's recommendation of On Writing Well for free, head on over to salestuners.com slash book, and there you can sign up for a free 30-day trial of Audible and browse their over 150,000 titles. Again, that's salestuners.com slash book for On Writing Well. Mike, what's currently at the top of your bucket list? I don't like to think too far in advance, so um, I'm going to say playing 18 holes of golf with my wife this afternoon. What is the biggest piece of advice that you have for all the sales tuners out there grinding today? Figure out what success looks like before you spend all of your time grinding. If you want to get in touch with Mike, hit him up on LinkedIn or check out one of his two best-selling books, Rainmaking Conversations and Insight Selling. Let's get to my top takeaways. Number one, run an attraction campaign. From primary research to brainstorming sessions and even success stories, these tactics can at least get you a first meeting. From there, it's up to you to educate the buyer with new ideas and perspectives while simultaneously weaving in your capabilities and offerings. Number two, shake up the complacency mindset. 
Your biggest competitor in a sales cycle is status quo. You have to help prospects see that where they are is not nearly as good as where they want to be. Notice I said where they want to be, not where you want them to be. Figure out how to get them to see that it's worthwhile for them to at least attempt a change and you can unlock the best value in the relationship. Number three, be present for that elusive time of need. For the short-term thinkers out there, this one will frustrate you. There are some products and services that require an active need in order for the prospect to actually buy. For certain buyers, that window may only be every two to three years. By building relationships now and growing your network, you can ensure that you'll at least have a shot when the time actually comes. Additionally, if you're building relationships with the right people, rest assured they have friends who they could refer you to in the meantime. That's it. Those are my takeaways, but I'd love to hear yours. Please tweet at me at SalesTuners or shoot me an email, jim at SalesTuners.com. I reply to every message that I get. All right. I hope to see you next week. Until then, I'm Jim Brown. Let's make it rain. Thank you for listening to Sales Tuners. Stay up to date at www.salestuners.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. And they stay there.